0: Lord, that is our hope, to see you, not just with the eyes of our heart, but with our very own eyes. Lord, help us, again, to continue in worship as we look into your word, as we hear what you've said to not just us individuals, but to your church. I pray, God, that you would take the the words of this feeble servant and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 again. Uh, We'll be concluding Matthew chapter 7, not today, sorry to get your hopes up. Uh, We'll be concluding it not today, but we'll be concluding it next week. Um, But uh, for now, we're going to hit kind of the conclusion of, of a progression of a line of thought. So open up again to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. While you're doing that, have you uh, have you ever had a near-death experience, the a moment where where dread and terror um, feel like they fall short in terms of a definition of of what's happening when that fear washes over you and your stomach sinks into a level a pit in your body that you didn't even realize was there. Um, I uh, I can confidently say I I really haven't had too many of those. But I will say that whenever I read our verses that we're going to read today, I get close to that. I have a, I, I have a sinking feeling in, in, in my stomach. And I realize the, the meaning of when the Hebrews, when the, when the Israelites would use the, the poetic term of, 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 of your bowels, Right, uh, they would they would use that to describe whenever you were really truly afraid. They would say that your bowels tremble, and I, I start to understand it. Um, so remember remember where we've been coming from the last few weeks. Actually, if you could forget last week, that would be that would be lovely. Uh, but but we've got we're hitting the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've we've been told that we need to enter through the narrow gate and. Be, uh, to be aware of the reprobates, those that enter through the wide gate, the easy way. They're not Christians. And then Jesus warns about false prophets. And he says, hey, you sheep, you need to be looking out for ravenous wolves that are, that, that are coming in sheep's clothing. And now we come to the false disciple. So the unbeliever, the false prophet, now the false disciple which I think is more common than the false prophet, but they're, they, they, can be, they can be dangerous, too. So let's read. Let's go ahead and read Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, You've got three fill-ins in your bulletin. I don't have a PowerPoint for this morning, uh, but the sermon summary kind of leads into it. Um. What, the first point is grand words do not determine salvation. So grand words do not determine salvation. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but when I became a Christian, I was exposed to a lot of bad doctrine. Um, some of it was outlandish, outright heresy. Others we good doctrine taken to their nth degree. And, uh, and as one theologian put it, uh, a, a doctrine boiled down to its bare bones is missing all its meat. And that's kind of what happened with some of, some of the things I was taught. And, and some of that, what I would classify as bad doctrine, uh, was what we call the sinner's prayer. Now, before, before you throw things at me, I'm not saying the sinner's prayer is bad doctrine what, what I experienced by the sinner's prayer. That, that was, that was bad doctrine. So a little story, right? So I had just started attending church, like on Sundays. I had attended youth group, went to a camp. I was, uh, the, the Lord saved me at this camp, started attending church. And uh, like, whenever a new youth came in the church, like the little old ladies would like surround the youth. Um, and it wasn't for cookies. Like, I, I, every week I would get cornered by someone new. And it was just kind of the the way of this church. And there was this one day where, where uh, I'm walking with my friends. Little old lady cuts me off, <laughs> starts having a nice conversation with me. And then all of a sudden, once my friends are out of earshot, her tone changes. And she looks me square in the eye and she goes have you prayed the sinner's prayer, son? And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> like, what? And, she, and, and I, 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 I don't know what I said, but I must have looked so dumbstruck at that particular phrase that she said, if you haven't prayed the sinner's prayer, I don't think you can call yourself a Christian. And she starts reaching into her jacket, and I'm like, what is going to go on here? And she takes out a bookmark, And it was a bookmark, and I don't remember if it had flowers or doves on it, but I'm sure you can start envisioning this bookmark. It had calligraphy on it. It said, The Sinner's Prayer, in nice calligraphy letters. And then it had The Sinner's Prayer underneath it. Um, And and I, I later found out that it was actually Billy Graham's version of The Sinner's Prayer, and it said this, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior in your name. Amen. Pretty good words. But apparently I had to pray that specific prayer on that specific bookmark. Otherwise, I was not saved. So, so again, it's not that the prayer is bad. But when we take these things and we elevate them to the nth degree and make, make this prayer as the thing that a person has to pray, that's, that's when it becomes bad doctrine. Bad application becomes bad doctrine. In, in our text for today, Jesus confronts Lip service, and that's kind of what the prayer becomes for a lot of people. I know a lot of people who have prayed the Sinner's Prayer, but when they read read the sentence, for instance, uh, "I believe You died uh, for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins." No, they don't really mean it. It's not the prayer that saved or, or, or even the manner in which the person prayed the prayer. Maybe they prayed it with a lot of emotion, right? They fell on their knees. They were at a, at, a, at a concert that was just emotional and they fell on their knees and they prayed the prayer, but they didn't really mean it. It's not the words that save a person, um I also encountered that a lot when I would talk to parents that had wayward kids and I'm talking like really wayward kids and then and like I'd be trying to counsel them through through some really hard struggles that they have watching their kids fall into sin and and I and I and I would say you know oh my gosh okay like it's not it's not your parenting it's not that you've you've forced your kid into this like, they're, they're making choices for themselves. But then all of a sudden, I would get inter- interrupted. Well, but they prayed the sinner's prayer when they were little, so I'm sure they're saved. You know, the Lord just, they're, they're just uh, backslidden. They just need to come back. It's not the words. It's really not. And Jesus confronts that in our text, for the, the text we read earlier. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's where that dread begins to sink. I call Jesus Lord. How, 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 how can I be sure that I'm, I'm not of those that are denied entry into heaven? See, these people that Jesus is talking about here, the false disciples, they know the right words. They call Jesus Lord. They acknowledge his position, right? That's what the, that's, I mean, the, the L is in capital, like that's it's obvious they mean the right one right? Not necessarily. Uh, the the Greek word for for lord is the Greek word kurios. Uh, in in Greek culture you would call basically anyone lord. It was kind of like when a southerner says sir. Not when a Southerner says "bless your heart," that's them calling you an idiot. But but when uh, but when they when if like when I worked in retail, customers would come in and I would call them sir or miss. Never ma'am. Found that out pretty quick. Uh, But but sir or miss, like it was just me acknowledging their position. But I didn't actually consider them an authority over me. I didn't I didn't actually consider that they were, you know. Like, honestly, I hate to tell customers this, um, but I'm not in the position so I can say it. Uh, a customer has no bearing over an employee's job. Just, you know, if you, got, if you got to escalate to the supervisor, it's because they're not helping you, not because you want to complain about them. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so, but, but, but imagine when you read those words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, it's like, sir, sir. It's not actually acknowledging Jesus' position, See, these people don't really mean it. They're paying lip service to Jesus. But they have a fatal flaw that we discover in that last verse, that they're workers of lawlessness. So what has to accompany words? Let's say a person says, Lord, Lord, right? They they say, Lord, Lord. They mean it. They mean Jesus is Lord. They pray that sinner's prayer. They really do believe that Jesus um, did something and he is God, right? Right? How can you tell? How can you tell that they actually mean it? Well, James is actually helpful here. He says in James 1, 22 to 25, be doers of the word. Well, but, but it's in contrast to something else. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's a scary position to be deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Now that describes a lot of people that I went to youth group with. We'd pray that sinner's prayer. I mean, constantly. We were always invited to do it at the end, right? Emotional song. You pick the best band. It's the headliner of the concert. They they play, they play some really well-known worship song that everybody knows. And then the invitation comes and... Honestly, I'd see the same kids going up to that altar every single time. I could almost point out the three. <laughs> when, I, when I was a youth leader and we'd take the middle schoolers, I'm like, yep, that, that one, that one, that one, every time. They would pay Jesus lip service, and they, they would look in that mirror, but then as soon as they left that concert, they would forget what, they, what their own selves looked like. James also says in 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Lip service is not faith. Using the right words, having the right lingo does not determine a person's salvation. Grand words Do not determine a person's salvation. And that's where the scary part sinks in. Because I've had a lot of people who I considered faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord that now consider themselves, well, the the new term is exvangelical. Instead of evangelical, ex out of, they left. That's the new term. I have a lot of people that I called brother and sister and meant it when I said it paid lip service to the Lord. So it seemed that words are insufficient. James, again, makes clear that we need to understand the gospel call in our lives beyond just salvation. There's there's an action that follows, right? We need to have works. We need to do certain things. So what what, what about someone who, um, who has the works, though, and no words. Or maybe it's a mixture of kind of the, the right terminology. They, they, they read from the evangelical dictionary. They read from the Christian dictionary. They know how to say that they have an unspoken prayer request. They know how to, how to, how to say that, uh, that you know, the, the gospel is important. They know, to, they know how to say that Jesus is Lord. And what if they do really, really good things for God? Well, point number two... Is grand works do not determine salvation? Well, what are you saying, Scott? They got the words, they got the works. How can they not be saved? Well, Good thing Jesus answers that question. Uh, so, so we read in verse 22, on that day, which again, that day is the day of judgment. So just think about it like that. Like, let's say let's say you or I perish. We go before the Lord, and he, he has his judgment on us. And then there's another judgment called the Bema Judgment. Anyway, theology, we can, we can do that another time. But we stand before God in judgment. And then, you know, we called him Lord. And then Jesus says this to us, uh, or rather we say this to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do, do many mighty works in your name? No. No, that's not, that's not the determiner of somebody's salvation. So it's not just having the right words, it's not having the right works, and seriously, look at the things that Jesus says these people did, right? They prophesied and they cast out demons. I mean, if there were like two markers of what I would understand somebody that's super extra holy would do, it's those two things. Like that, that's pretty far up there, like in the chart of really neat things, right? Prophesying, casting out demons. And then the third one, do many mighty works. There are a lot of false teachers that do many mighty works. There are a lot of false disciples who do many mighty works and even use the right terminology. And yet, honestly, they're they're not saved. That's what scares me. Doesn't that kind of scare you? I hope so. I hope that that I'm not the only one in this room who's a little afraid. Now, just just to clarify something, to do something in somebody's name, means to use their reputation or position as the means by which something is accomplished. That was really technical. To do something in somebody else's name means that you're using their reputation so that you can do something. For instance, when I, uh, I, I had a friend that was trying to get me a better job at his workplace, and he said, hey, just tell him, tell him I sent you. Well, I, I was using his name to further it. I, I got closer to getting that job. I didn't get the job, but I got closer to getting that job because I knew somebody that worked in a place in the place that that was. Or, for instance, if I were to send uh, send Abby to go go pick up an order, right, if I'm, let's say I made an order from Cup of Sass, and I didn't want to get out of the car because it was raining and I wanted to send my poor five-year-old daughter to do the hard work. Uh, <laughs> I hope that, I hope I wouldn't do that. Anyway, um, if I sent her in, I'd say, hey, tell them the order's for Scott. So then my five-year-old daughter, who goes in with my debit card, she'd be capable of picking up my order, because I told her to go in my name. Or let's say let's say uh, you needed to make an order at a print shop, right? You would call with your business name. You would say, hey, this is the orders for so-and-so, right? Um, you, that way they know, okay, well, we're gonna charge this guy. Not gonna charge the person calling, we're gonna charge the company that they represent. So these people, are doing things in Jesus's name. They've done these many things for God, right? But there's, some, there's a little hint in the way Jesus says it. These people, when they're defending themselves, which is exactly what they're doing, they're trying to defend themselves to God. They're standing before Jesus and trying to say, no, 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 I'm valuable. <laughs> you want me in your kingdom. Listen to the way they say it. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not? Aren't these cool things I did? Yeah, I did it. Mm. If this church over the next year grows to 300 people, yeah, Scott did it. Isn't that the way it works? Scott did it in Jesus' name. No. No, these people did things for God, but they did it wrongly. They were using Jesus' name, some, or they were doing it in Jesus' name, maybe to get in the door, maybe, to, maybe to, to, to accomplish this mighty thing, but somehow they were doing it wrongly. So it wasn't their words that betrayed them. It wasn't their works that betrayed them. It was actually something else. An example of when Jesus' name goes awry, this is one of my favorite examples. If I, could pick, if I could pick any story from the Bible that I would think is the f- like, top five funniest Bible stories, this would be it. Uh, an example of Jesus' name going awry is in Acts 19, verses 11 through 17. So you're welcome to turn there, bookmark it in your Bible, because Acts 19, got to remember this one. It's, uh, it's, it's surrounding these exorcists, these Jewish exorcists. They were sons of a guy named Skeva. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Hey, let's think about that phrasing for a second. God was doing them. So God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Whoa. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Hey, this guy, Paul, like things are touching him and they're taking away diseases. Maybe, maybe this is like a magic thing and I can just use Jesus's name and these demons will obey me. Um. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah, they're bleeding and naked. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Whoa. Hold on. Let's go back. Let's recap. Extraordinary things. God is doing extraordinary things through Paul. These guys decide to capitalize on it, thinking, hey, maybe this will work for us. It doesn't (laughs) in the worst of ways. And they run away naked and wounded. And what happens? Jesus's name was extolled, not the sons of Sceva. See, an itinerant exorcist at that time, they got a name for themselves, man. They they got a they got a, a reputation that precedes them, right? These sons of Sceva, maybe people know Sceva. Oh, he's the high priest. Yeah, yeah, his sons have got to be really good here, uh, but something ain't working for them. So they decide to try a new method. That method ends up being destructive to them, um, and Jesus is praised. So what this situation illustrates is that these Jewish exorcists were trying to use Jesus' name as if it were a tool, but as they found out, it doesn't work that way. Jesus' name, doing something in Jesus' name, is not a magic word that accomplishes power over demons in this situation over, or, uh, or even, even closeness to the Father. Just because we say these words or do these great things does not actually mean we have saving faith. God can work great things through false prophets. For instance, the whole town of Ephesus beginning to praise and extol the name of Jesus. But when that happens, when false prophets and false disciples come through, it's, you know, Jesus is going to be praised, but the prophets and the disciples are going to suffer at the hand of their own stupidity. So these people back in Matthew chapter 7, they've done some pretty good things in Jesus' name, right? Right? They've prophesied, they've cast out demons, and they've done many, many mighty works. But, but unfortunately, they're doing it to their own pride somehow. And just as a side note, like, really, think, think, about, think about this scenario, right? Somebody standing before Jesus, God and creator of the universe, the one to whom and through whom and for whom all things have been made, And these these pitiable worms stand there and say, "Uh, hey, you know what? I did these really cool things for me. So I got I got I got the I got the VIP pass, man. Let me on through. Excuse me (laughs) that. No, 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 that's not the way this works. God doesn't owe you anything, buddy. Listen, we can all stand before God and say, hey, you know what? I've been a really good guy. I did awesome things. You owe me entrance. But, but, but no, no, that is not the way this works. There is only one name by which we are to be saved, and it's not your own. Nor is it your works, nor is it your words. Listen, just because I used a particular hammer to hammer in a particular nail does not make that hammer the best hammer in the world. The instrument by which God chooses to work things is nothing. It's just a tool. So, so if, if, words, if, if if words plus works do not equal salvation, what, it, what actually does? Where does that leave us? Are we just left in an ocean without a life preserver? And for those of us that think ourselves saved, how can we actually be sure of our salvation? It would seem that the matter lies not with our mouth or with our hands predominantly, but our heart. So, point three is doing the will of the Father and being known by the Son guarantee salvation. Now, you wouldn't think in a condemnation, that Jesus is giving, there'd be much hope. <laughs> when Jesus himself says, no, you don't really, you wouldn't expect there to be any, any goodness in the midst of it. But, but think, there's actually two. There's two hopeful promises, and they're kind of the antitheses of what Jesus says. But in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, well, there's one thing. All right, so I need to do the will of... Jesus' Father. And then verse 23, when, when Jesus says to these false disciples, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, the antithesis is good. It really is good news to be known by Jesus. To be known by Jesus guarantees salvation. So just to, just to tackle those two things, doing the will of the Father and being known by Jesus... Are you doing the will of the Father? Do you even know what the Father's will is? If I say that, does that sound like some esoteric, uh, cloudy, wispy, um, weird thing? Like, uh, of course I'm doing the will of the Father. Like, start to squirm a little bit when you hear that? Well, let me encourage you that, that, that one truth of Scripture is that you never have to be great for God. We don't, um, we don't do things to make God happy with us. God is happy with us, therefore we do things. See, it's a matter of the heart. It's, a matter, it's actually a matter of, of, of why we're doing things. Listen, when I take a coin and I put it in a gumball machine and I turn that crank, I expect it to give me a gumball you ever have it not give you a gumball? That's like earth shattering. Like that was my 25 cents. I don't even carry quarters. Give me that back. (laughs) But, but God is not a gumball machine. I don't do things to get things from him. Instead, he's already given me the whole thing of gumballs. He's already said, this is yours. I love you. I want you to have it. He's given us all the gumballs in his son, Jesus Christ. He's given us everything that we could ever want, ever ever care for, ever desire. So therefore, what do we do? We eat and give out the gumballs. We've got more than we need. So we want, we want to serve him. Why? Because we have them all. We have an infinite supply of gumballs. We have an infinite supply of God's righteousness. Being being constantly, uh, not poured out, being constantly supplied to us. The Christian doesn't do these things and say, yeah, look at me and my righteousness. The Christian does things and goes, it's all God. It's all God. God has done it for me. I'm just doing it for you. I mean, if we really honestly look at scripture, God has chosen the most outlandishly stupid people <laughs> to do things. Think about Moses, an outlaw turned shepherd. And yet he's, the cho- he's chosen as the prophet who leads his, God's people out of Egypt. He takes a child shepherd in David and appoints him the kingdom of Israel. He takes a runaway prophet, Jonah, to declare a message of repentance to Gentile nation, to a non-Jewish nation of Nineveh. And then the minor prophets, God chooses a series of people who suffered greatly to essentially remind Judah and Israel of their sins and their coming destruction. Listen, the the examples could go on and on and on and on. But God makes some pretty bad choices. But wait, it's not about the choices he makes. It's actually about what he does through those people. Actually, what he does despite those people. That's the hope. That no matter who you or I are, are, is, am, we are, we is, Anyway, no matter what we are, no matter who we are, no matter matter what we do, God is the one who does things through us. God is the one who gets the glory. So if you want a guarantee of your salvation, ask yourself, whenever you do something grand, do you congratulate yourself? Do you give yourself a little pat on the back? Or do you praise God? All in all, God does not call great people. He really doesn't. He calls the weak and the worthless and instead shows them his greatness. God does these things using vessels like you and I for his glory, not ours. If we think we're going to stand before God and show him all the wonderful things we've done and we think that's going to be enough, We've forgotten that, honestly, our good works are like filthy rags. Nobody wants to wear filthy rags. Nobody, nobody wants to use filthy rags. If, if my son spills a bunch of juice and, uh, and, and runs and fishes out toilet paper from the toilet and hands it to me to clean it up, mm-mm, ain't happening. I don't want that. I, mean, I can't even believe you touched it. Gross. Put that away. Flush it. No, instead instead of expecting us to do things for him, he expects us to do things by him. Doing the the will of the Father really honestly means that you are living a life that allows that, that allows you to glorify the Father instead of yourself. Now, what does it mean to be known by Jesus? Real quick, just burning through this one. What does it mean to be known by Jesus? Well, if you were to open to John chapter 10, you would find what I find to be some of the most comforting words of Jesus that he's ever said. And just to to point out, these verses... Uh, and, and especially the way that the, if you just read them in isolation, they can make people mad, but they actually started a riot uh, in, in, in the story of this. But in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one... Will snatch them out of my hand. What does it mean to be known by Jesus? It means to follow him. Listen, the Sermon on the Mount has been also often described as like Jesus's version of Proverbs, because because if if you think of who God chooses, right, the outlaw turned uh, turned shepherd into a prophet. You and I wouldn't choose that, but instead, what, what God demands from us, what God commands for us to do in order to follow him, to live a righteous life, is actually everything in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why it kind of functions like Proverbs. We can read these things. So what, what does it mean to be known by Jesus? Well, it means that we follow him. We follow him in being poor in spirit, in mourning over our sins, over our sins, not his and being meek and humble, hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God, merciful and not harsh, pure in heart, peacemakers, not warmongers, persecuted, and having all kinds of evil said and done against us on Jesus' account. That's just a few verses. A few verses from Matthew chapter 5. But Jesus epitomizes everything in the Sermon on the Mount. If we want to follow Jesus, we we follow Jesus by by doing this if you want to be known by Jesus even better if you want to know Jesus he's given you a window and not just Matthew 5 through 7 but the whole word of God you can you can read this book i mean if you think of how God has preserved this book throughout centuries of fires and wars and 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 mass killings and plagues and and Stuff. I mean, earthquakes, natural disasters. God has preserved this book for us, for our benefit. And we live in a generation where not only can I get it in book form, but I can get it on my computer. Uh, I can get it on the internet. I can get it on my phone. I can get it essentially anywhere. I can be inundated in God's word, and I can can know Jesus. I can be known by Jesus, and I can follow Jesus even easier than any generation in the past. But am I? Are you? Listen, when Jesus says that nobody, no one is able to snatch his sheep out of his hand, That should be a comfort. So while our initial verse strikes terror in me, strikes a little bit of dread, these verses remind me that I am his and he is mine. I'm hesitant whenever whenever I do something to say, yeah, you know what, I did a really good job. And most of the time people think I'm just being down on myself and I have Appreciate the care and concern. But usually it's because despite me, something went well. It was God who did it. I was just his instrument. I was his hammer, his screwdriver. I'm not, I'm, I'm not anything. But I know the one to whom and through whom and for whom all things exist. He does all things for his glory. So it's not words that guarantee salvation. It's not works that guarantee salvation. It's doing the will of the Father and being known by the Son. So are you known by Jesus? Or are you someone to whom Jesus will say on that day, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness? We should all actually feel a little bit of dread when that question is raised. We should all feel a sinking pit in our stomach. And if, if we don't feel that dread at all, that's cause for question. And it's not question for me. It's question for yourself to start doing some soul searching, to think about what would you say on Judgment Day? How would you stand before God? I had a professor once say that, you know, honestly, when we all stand before God, those of us who really know him, we might have a speech prepared, like, hey, I've done these great things for you, God, here we are, you know, it's not real, but the pearly, pearly gates of Peter... It's not real, but let's say we had to wait in line. We might be rehearsing in our head, like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to say this and this and this and these cool things. I raised this much money for ministry. I did these many mission trips. I, uh, I built these many whales, uh, whales, wells, wells. Uh, I, I, I sent these, ma- these many Operation Christmas Child boxes. But when we stand before Jesus, when we see His righteousness, his holiness, his perfection, his glory, those of us who truly know him and are known by him are going to stand before him and say, I've got nothing. I really have nothing. I just have you and you're enough. You don't have to remember that, but you're going to want to say that if you truly know him. But you need to think about it. If you're going to be the dude that stands there and says, I prophesied, I cast out demons, I did many mighty works. Repent. Eternal life is only in him. Only in the one who declares, I know them. And they follow me. So are you known by Jesus? And do you follow him? Are you presuming on your words or your works? Because if so, then you're going to going to destruction. And I plead for you, repent. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that these words would really terrify us they would cause us to question maybe maybe how we feel useful in your kingdom maybe what we do to earn your favor if we even think that we can earn your favor lord then we we've forgotten what grace is we stand saved by grace through faith we have done nothing to merit salvation and yet you give us salvation, and therefore we live out our faith. May we not have dead faith, like James declares to those who, who, uh, who, who don't live out, who don't uh, do things with their faith. Father, rebuke us and grant us repentance. May none of us in this room be, be of the group that you will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if we are, Lord, transform us, redeem us, save us, in Jesus' name, amen. What defense do you have against the King of kings and Lord of lords? Is it your words, your works, or your heart that wants to worship him in all circumstances, Go in peace, saints.